So uh, Pete, you and I talked uh, some months ago, and I was so happy to learn of your efforts. And I guess you have a JD from Florida Coastal and a master's of law from Vermont School of Law. And you've, you have started what's called the Silent Majority Foundation. Could you tell me a little bit about your journey to get uh, the Silent Majority Foundation going? Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate that. So I'm actually a California kid. I grew up in the Sacramento area, a small town called Auburn. And, you know, when I tried to figure out what I was supposed to do when I grew up, and I'm still working on that question presently, I felt like law school was the way for me to go. I had met a mentor from church. He was this great, like, first-generation Italian guy. I happened to do some missionary work in Italy, so we hit it off. He was this commercial litigator, you know, nice suit, nice car, nice house, but really down to the earth. And he said, you know, you should, if you're not sure what you want to do, Pete, why don't you look at law school? And so, you know, I kind of bounced around, was looking at grad school, worked retail for a while and realized, you know, this just isn't me. And so took the LSAT with no preparation and ended up at Florida Coastal because they offered me money and it was on the beach in Jacksonville, Florida. So, you know, great weather and albeit a pricey school, they had offered me money. I thought this is the way to go. Well, my first year torts professor was our environmental clinician and a guy named Randy Abate. And I just love the way Abate taught the classes. And I said, you know what, next year when I have my electives, I'll pick up an environmental class or two. Well, Environmental class or two turn into internships, you know, semesters or, or I think we call them mid-sessions abroad in the Cayman Islands studying international ocean law. So, you know, there was a certain allure in Florida to do the environmental studies. And I graduated in 09, where the economy was struggling. And I talked to one of these guys who was a mentor of mine that was actually in private practice, a shareholder at Ropes Gray, which, you know, at least in the Southeast is a pretty solid firm. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. And, and so you know, guy named, guy's name was, is Sid Onsbrocker. And so Sid said, Pete, you know, if you think you want to do environmental, why don't you go get an LLM? And I said, well, you know, I'm getting married. I don't know what to do. And he said, just apply, just apply. It can't hurt. It's the way the fees are is 50 bucks and I'll give it to you if it costs. <laughs> like, okay. So I applied, got into Vermont law school, which is ranked number one at the time and boom, hit it off, loved it, was ready to go had an internship, was lined up with a job with the state and the budget fell through. <laughs> so I'm coming. <laughs> yeah. So it's 2010. I come out of law school with law school LLM debt. And I ended up landing in practice, uh, private practice, a little boutique firm in DC that was suing EPA on rulemaking. And mm -hmm. I remember talking to my grandfather, my paternal grandfather. So my dad's dad. And I was telling him what I was doing. And I said, Grandpa, you know, I'm suing the government to try to keep them accountable. And this is a World War II that, mind you. He said, isn't it great that we have a system where we can actually, we the people, provide these checks and balances? And that's, you know, to this day, and now what's, what, at least 10, 12 years later, still resonates with me that Grandpa Serrano told me, you know, this, this is what our system's meant to be. It's, it's to allow guys like you and I to represent people, Warner you know, in courts or let them represent themselves to keep the government accountable. And so, you know, fast forward, two friends from law school, a buddy gets married, we're back down in Florida, this is like 2006. 
and we connect again and they're like hey we're working for doe hanford and i'm like what's doe hanford never heard of it again i'm back in california now why don't you come check it out and why don't you apply there's an environmental job i was like oh environmental job now i'm listening right <laughs> um and then I start to research on what Hanford is, produces plutonium for World War II munitions. There's an actual on-site operating reactor, not part of the DOE facility. It's on the complex, but it's not DOEs. You know, I mean, there's just this cool stuff going on on site. And so uh, late 2015, we end up moving here to work for DOE Hanford. Left there, worked for Energy Northwest for a couple of years. It was actually working on permitting new nuclear reactors on that site and COVID hits. And, you know, I start looking around wondering who's going to stand for these people's rights. There were a handful of cases, but they were sporadic. And, you know, everyone tried to draw first blood. It was kind of like this really off the cuff. And I thought, you know what, I've watched this play out for over a year. I have to jump in. And so with some friends, I started Silent Majority Foundation. We're a 501c3 out of Washington. And we're standing for, you know, everyone's rights, but specifically targeting here in Washington. We're actually hopefully going to branch out either to the Midwest or Southeast sometime soon. And, and what kind of cases? So are you still employed outside of Silent Majority Foundation as well? Or is it primarily the efforts through Silent Majority Foundation? It is exclusively the Silent Majority Foundation efforts. I actually, you know, so I was working for the other agency, the state agency producing power, yeah. the new nuclear facility. And I had this great gig. I was getting paid well, more than I pay myself at Silent Majority Foundation, had phenomenal benefits that I don't have as well as retirement and all that stuff. I worked my four tens and now I'm working like 70 hours a week. Right. But, you know, someone had to do something. And so I quit my job and... I looked at my wife, you know, we're people of faith and we had prayed about it. We had fasted about it. We discussed it at length. Fortunately, our kids are eight, six, and three, and they don't really see or feel anything different other than dad's not home. Right. And, and so fortunately I told my wife, I said, her name's PJ. I said, PJ, you know, this is what I feel like I'm supposed to do. Let's continue to have a conversation literally within a week or two. She's like, all right, you're quitting your job. And you know, I, at this time, I'd already filed one lawsuit. I was working two jobs at this point. You know, I was going home at five, six o'clock, putting the kids down and working until three, four in the morning, getting up at six to go to work. And I just, I knew I couldn't handle that. And I also knew that I could never bring the justice that's necessary through part-time efforts. So yeah, yeah, you know, August 16th, we formed the foundation of 2021. By November 1st, I quit my job. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. That's that's a real uh, leap of faith, isn't it? It is. And I mean, I don't get me wrong. I complain about it a lot behind closed doors. But, you know, again, because it was a leap of faith, I feel like this is what God has me on the earth to do for now. And, you know, I, I don't know if it's temporary or permanent. I'd love to think that, you know, 20, 30 years from now, people are no longer calling the ACLU, but they're calling silent majority foundation on civil rights issues, at least the conservative folks will. We want to have that staying power. It's not, I mean, again, we're starting in Washington just because we're small, but I've got a friend that's talking about doing some work in Nashville and a friend in Fort Lauderdale, you know, and obviously we've talked with you guys. We haven't teamed with you at this point, but you know, that's always on the table of continually working with other like-minded groups to share resources. And we've done that well, the sharing of resources for sure. 
Um, yeah, and I think that's what's happening. I mean, I'm hoping that this will gel as a community, you know, of like-minded attorneys that are willing to take on these tremendous battles that, that need, really need to be fought. You and I have talked a little bit. I mean, we certainly reoriented our firm because of the pandemic. I mean, just initially starting with the shutdowns, we had a shut, you know, we had a, we had a curfew case. And, and actually our very first case is now at the Ohio Supreme Court. We lost all the way to the Supreme Court. So we'll see what happens there. What was your first case? What was the first one you guys took on? So the very first case was I live in a city called Pasco in County, Franklin County. And in Franklin County, about 20 miles away from us, there's this little prison community called Connell. It's farm prison, maybe some education mixed in, but primarily farm and prison workers. And one of these prison workers from Connell called me and said, hey, you know, I heard someone's looking to help. Like, how, what, what can I where can I go? Right. You know, I'm about to be terminated. It's the job for jab. Jay Inslee made a mandate, our governor, and I'm about to lose my job. And this was what really kicked the August 16th date of, of into high gear where, you know, we had three directors who were already kind of formulated. We wanted to get a better website. You know, we had all these like business wish lists. We were in the process of finally ordering business cards and semi-glossy, you know, I mean, these stupid decisions that really are, they're helpful as a business, but they're not like the driver. And, and so Jeff Johnson is the plaintiff's name. Jeff called me and I said, you know what, you want to stand up, I'll stand with you. And at that point, I told Vincent Cavallari, Eric Marchant, and we've since brought Rob Waits as a fourth director on. But I told Vince and Eric on a, a call, I said, guys, I'm working on this lawsuit tonight. I'm going to try and file it in two weeks. The foundation is live. I clicked the secretary of state. I purchased rights to our, our little logo here on my hat. You know, I, just little things that as a lawyer, I'm like, oh, I'm going to protect us in case this blows up. And I'm grateful to have done it. You know, as a single plaintiff, Goliath and David's story, you know, unfortunately, we were dismissed. Uh, you know, we, we worked the process as long as we could. I saw a temporary restraining order, injunctive relief. And once that was dismissed, I kind of got caught up. You and I talked about the Department of Energy Hanford site. We had represented 315 plaintiffs. That was our second case. But since then, you know, we've brought a lawsuit against a state superintendent who forced kids to be masked. Um, unfortunately, that one was mooted out when the rule actually naturally expired at 120 days. I still think it's a ripe question. I've thought about appealing it. But rather, what I'm going to do is hold the information at bay. I've got the transcript, and I'm going to actually use the attorney general's words and say, listen, when he was in court, he was saying that this is not going to happen again. You know, the governor's representative, the AG's representative, they're, they're telling us, they're, they're giving us the hand. And, yeah, you know. That's, that's actually good. I mean, they're truly mooting that out by their testimony, in a sense. I mean, we're facing that in some of our lawsuits, but some of the universities that we have sued have not been willing to say that they won't reinstitute the mandates. So, you know, we are continuing with that because they are not really mooted out. I mean, I would love an admission that what they did cannot be reinstituted and, and was improper. So you got a fantastic admission there. And that's a great idea to have that transcript available. So back to your first lawsuit with the prison employee, what ended up happening with that one? What, how did that proceed? And what court was that in? So I brought it. This one's really intriguing because 
our venue statute is very prescriptive when you're challenging. Actually, I thought it was open-ended when I filed the lawsuit. Then I made maybe bad precedent. We'll see. So I filed in Franklin County, which is where I reside, where the prison is, where the, all the operations were conducted, where the plaintiff actually resides as well. And we sued the governor on his rulemaking. And ultimately, we had a judge who said, yeah, you can proceed in Franklin County. And literally immediately within, I think by the end of the next closed business, I had an immediate appeal to the Supreme Court of the state of Washington from the attorney general's office saying, no, 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 no. It's got to go to Thurston County, which is Olympia, where our governor sits. It's got to go in his home venue by statutes. Mm -hmm. And that particular statute, as well as our Administrative Procedures Act, has really plagued me throughout this. It's really hamstrung me because, you know, we know that in Thurston County, out of the eight judges, seven are Inslee appointees. One was actually elected on her own, but worked in the attorney general's office for like 18 years. So, you know, we know what we're dealing with down here. We don't have that close governmental reach. You know, all of these people, albeit, you know, some of the recent appointees have been bad by Jay Inslee down in Franklin County. A lot of these people have earned their stripes, you know, while they may have been his original appointees, they've shaped their thinking because they've won one or two elections. And we've elected as a conservative area, very conservative, like-minded judges. So, of course, I want to be down here. If they can cherry pick venue, why can't I? And so, unfortunately, it died uh, because of that appeal. I had a judicial commissioner, which is a hired gun by the Supreme Court, who basically decides what's in and what's out. After all the briefing, he had this opinion that was ultimately went to the Supreme Court and they issued an en banc opinion. But the commissioner said, you know, we're not here to argue about ivermectin. And he puts this footnote in saying growing up on a horse farm and raising cattle, I understand the value of ivermectin as a horse dewormer. And I said, we didn't argue the science. We're questioning whether or not Mr. Johnson's you know, responsibilities and rights as an employee of the state, which is statutorily protected, should be implicated by his decision of bodily autonomy and integrity. This doesn't have to do with horse dewormer or any other pill, simply the question before the court. And, and this guy just teed off on it. You know, our question was, should he have to have the shot to stay, you know, working for the state? Unfortunately, the Supreme Court actually upheld that. And I've seen my case, unfortunately, cited on a venue proposition. So assuming the red wave happens, and I would you know, offer this advice to any other litigator, um, tee up. If, if, if you're in a conservative state or red wave happens, like we're predicting here even, we are teeing up some different legislation pieces to modify the Administrative Procedures Act and to modify that governor's overriding statute to say, you know what, like everything else, if a plaintiff is harmed somewhere, there's rights to access to that court. So we are hoping to override the Supreme Court's decision, but certainly through other acts, we want to bring it back to the home venue. I mean, I think that's one of the things that I've always felt in the litigation. I mean, just by engaging, you learn about these processes and the problems with the processes and then as the legislature changes, you know, they can make corrections. And we've seen that happen at the state level here in Ohio as well with the, you know, they stripped back the uh, governor's emergency powers so that it had to go. He could get 60 days, but then it has to go back to the legislature to continue beyond that. And that was very helpful. And, you know, he vetoed it. It got overridden. 
So, you know, and, and we have a Republican uh, governor, but he happens to be kind of a Chamber of Commerce Republican, all in on the vax, all in on all this, you know, lockdown and, and masking and all that stuff. So it was very helpful to see our state legislature respond to that. And I, I do think, I, I think what you say, you can see the red wave coming uh, a mile away at this point. I mean, I think people have really understood that our liberties are at issue. And that, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I may have described my background to you, maybe you don't remember this, but I used to be a Democratic city councilman here at Akron. And I swear to God, I mean, I'm a freedom voter. I mean, period. If we don't have freedom, forget the rest of it. We can argue about all the rest of it later. But, you know, you got to have your basic freedoms and you've got to have the ability like you started off with is this ability to challenge local, state and federal government and do it in a way that can be effective. And if we need to change the laws to get there, that's what we need to do. So really congratulations on making that effort because that's what leads to change is just making the effort. Now, let me ask you, I, I imagine that your client uh, has now lost his job at the, at the facility, is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, oh my. And it, did, he, did he manage to get unemployment or anything else? I believe he was able to obtain unemployment and he and his wife started a small business. And oh, wow. Been doing, you know, fairly well, let's say. Yeah. You know. Well, good for him for standing up. Did other people, you know, at the prison facility, did they stand up as well then after his example or what, what happened with that? Yeah, they, they actually were already on like critical mass, low staffing prior to the pandemic. And mm -hmm. I think they lost close to 20% of their workforce, somewhere okay. in the high teens at least. And with that, it went to even more critical mass. So one of the plays we've contemplated is whether or not we can sue uh, under the state discrimination law, the warden, rather than the state, because the warden's the one who implemented it. And he'll, of course, point up and say, no, it's Department of Corrections who went to Jay Inslee. But if we could sue the warden, we could keep that here in Franklin County and we might get that same judge. Interestingly enough, that judge that ruled to keep it here in Franklin County and was overturned by the Supreme Court, I saw him the other day and I said, hey, judge, how you doing? Oh, good. Hey, Mr. Serrano. I said, you know, I don't know if you remember. He said, oh, you don't have to finish your sentence. I still have their ruling on my desk. <laughs> so I've got a judge who cited with me once who's fired up about this. And, and when I drew him, I literally had, I feel like I prayed my drawing into him, right? I, I told everyone that followed our foundation that so we want to be in front of Dave Peterson. He's the guy to hear this case if you're on our side. And I draw him and like by what felt like a miracle. And maybe it was, maybe it wasn't all attributed to divine intervention. And, you know, it was great you know, as long as it stayed in his court. And so I know he's fired up. I know he's ready to hear another case. So I'm looking for a way to bring, you know, the employment side, the compensation side to him, because I know, I know where he sits. He tipped his hand and, and that's how a judge should be when he or she rules, right? This is what I, how I view the world. And he certainly did that. So if I could get the employment side of things or unemployment side of things, I, I certainly would like to. I've got this other sneaky little play. I don't know if it plays out, but so revised code of Washington title 43 is where the governor's powers are housed. And it's a subsection 0.06. And then there are various subsections under that. Well, 
we have consistently for the past two years, I'd say a good 12 to 15 cases, federal and state, have challenged under subsection 220, which is the, the actual parameters of his powers. Well, as I've looked at it, I actually sued the governor again a week and a half ago, and I have a hearing this coming Friday, May 27th on whether or not he met the precondition, which is finding a state of emergency, because after 800 plus days, his most recent proclamations occurred when there were two counties with zero cases and 15 out of 39 counties with less than 10 cases. And he declared the state of emergency in the whole state and then actually says these two words, all counties. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking, you know, if I'm successful and get a TRO, a temporary restraining order, injunctive relief, even a preliminary injunction, this Friday, the following Tuesday, because Monday's a holiday, I want I want to blast an email to uh, the 3,000, 4,000 people that follow us and say, go get your jobs today. If you're a state employee who is terminated under Jay Inslee's mandate, there's been an injunction issued against it. Go get your job today. I would love thousands of people to literally go back and knock on doors and, and have their supervisors and call them, just blow them up on their phones. You know, not literally, we, I guess we have to be careful with that term. Um, you know, just call them incessantly. My job's back. I, it's, this has been enjoined. You've got to hire me for at least today. Oh, wow. Well, that's, and, and that's so critical. I mean, I, you know, that's something I've always looked at in, in uh, you know, my career to go back to those foundational statutes because you often find that they really do skip steps that, that, you know, if nobody calls them on it, it never happens. But going back to the statute, reading it, understanding that he has to find an emergency. And, and I love the identification of all counties when you got a couple of zero counties that obviously you can't have a state of emergency in. So yeah. that's, that's just fantastic thinking. So you're going to have that, you're, you're planning to file that this week. Is that right? So it was filed last week and okay. by statute, you have to allow 14 days from date of filing to a, an injunctive relief hearing, okay. unless there's like a true danger, like an abusive issue, something like that. Uh, that said, you can go ex parte and we tried going ex parte on a motion and the judge denied the ex parte uh, order. So we're back in front of her next, this Friday, the 27th. And if, if she just finds it credible enough to issue even a 14 day TRO and for what it will do arguably is force the governor to, to define or find a state of emergency. He's going to have to start giving case counts per County. And what I, the other you know, chaos and pandemonium I want to ensue is I'm going to tell the county commissioners that I'm familiar with the conservative side and say, hey, listen, you need to pay attention when Jay Inslee says 39 counties in Franklin County, my county, you need to be ready to sue him. Right. right. Why is he enacting a specific proclamation in your county? You know, it's one thing when Mount St. Helens erupted. I understand that there was volcanic ash and it was in the atmospheric, it was on the ground. This is COVID and we've learned to adopt to it after two years. So, you know, why are you going to take local control? And I suspect that's how he's going to go about it. So I'm teeing the issue up again, the pandemonium from forcing, telling people to go get their jobs back and just mess with the system and then get the county commissioners teed up to sue him. 
Do you have some takers from the county commissioners? I mean, I think that's a, a great way to think about this as well. I mean, the counties have tax dollars that can fund the litigation. I mean, you're there ready to go as well. They could hire you as independent counsel, I imagine, to represent some of the counties. Yeah, interestingly enough, one of the counties that I reached out to was one of those zero counties. And the guy's a real conservative guy. And I kept a cell phone number. I said, I might be calling you depending on how things go in the next couple of weeks. Unfortunately, you know, I couldn't represent the county at the time. It just, we didn't have the relationship. And so if we're successful, I'm going to call him Friday afternoon and say, listen, Chuck, I want you to be ready to sue him when he tells you that it's got to be two cases. Yeah. Why, Jay, is it two cases for Columbia? What, what's your base? Again, finding an emergency. Don't just create some arbitrary number. We've been told by Jay Inslee, data and science for two years, over two years now. And I don't even know what those words mean to him. And I don't think he does either. Yeah. So We have, yeah, I mean, we've actually, uh, just from my experience in Ohio, we have had a couple of county health departments that made a very different decision about masking and mandates in their counties. And, and then also in Ohio, half the school districts did not impose masking and half did. And guess which half had more COVID? Right, of course, the ones the that are have with the masking, right? oh my God. <laughs> you know, so we've had a wonderful natural experiment that's occurred and it's been very heartening to the extent and it's a small extent, obviously, but the, to the extent that some local governments, you know, have reached out and shared their thinking and kind of rejected this whole process that was being driven at the federal and the state level. So, you know, local government officials, I think everyone listening should know that they have tremendous power and resources if they want to bring it to bear and uh, there are very, very strong arguments against what we've seen happening, you know, and you and I coming in, you know, as independent, you know, attorneys, you know, representing the little guy, representing the employee or whatever. I mean, it, it does carry a lot of weight if you can get a local official behind you or a local group like the county commissioners to fund something like that. You have a lot more weight when you bring another government into bear. So, you know, we have not had that opportunity. We have been, you know, in discussions with some of the counties that just resisted it. And frankly, nobody came in to enforce. I mean, they just got away with it, basically. The, the, government, the government of the state was not going to confront these local governments that went another direction or the school boards that went another direction. So I think that's a really important lesson for our local politicians who need to find some courage sometimes. They should be heartened by these kinds of stories. So we actually had the opposite effect. I actually represented parents of the school district that when they bucked, when the school district bucked the mandate and these three school board members are actually under recall right now for bucking mm. the state's mandate, the state superintendent immediately, literally same day, closed the business, sent a letter to them saying, by the way, I've enacted an emergency rule that if you buck the mask mandate for your students, then I'll withhold funding. Well, I mean, there are several issues that are wrong with that, and that'd be a whole separate podcast on that lawsuit yeah. in and of itself. The one regret I have of that is when we filed, it was timely. We had to move venue um, because of a state statute. I was trying to get in front of the judge that I mentioned that was really looking forward to these cases here locally. 
And I was told that it had to go to Thurston County. And, you know, rather than litigate the venue issue, and I knew the attorney general would do that with their team of eight or 10 or whatever it is. Right. I knew I didn't have the resources to fight the fight. So I conceded with through the case and then brought it again in Thurston County. And by the time we got in front of the judge, it was too late. And, and that's my biggest regret of that. Nonetheless, I'm prepared to tee it up. Uh, if in the fall, even though the AG's office has said they're not going to bring it back, you know, that their client, Mr. Reichdahl, the state superintendent's not bringing it back. We'll see what happens there. I'm ready that's, to go. That's the, that's the case where you have the transcript uh, where they have said they were not bringing the mask mandates yep. back. Okay, well, that's that's actually a fantastic outcome. I, you know, whatever you did to get that statement on the record is great. What So the recall, who's bringing the recall against the uh, uh, Board of Education, the Board of Education? So it, it's for local school district parents are recalling the three conservative ones oh, because geez. they don't like them for bucking the mask mandate. And so right now that's actually being litigated. So in Washington state, recalls a process that requires charges, a hearing at the county, depending on where you are, uh, that's actually specific to the individual being recalled. If at that time, so right now the trial court, the Franklin County, they got this judge that's a newly appointed Anyway, that's another broadcast series. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's interesting. Those reforms specifically come out of the progressive movement. And yep. we have we have a similar statute in Ohio with the school boards in particular that they actually have to bring a charge. And then that charge gets tried. And I can tell you that it is not very frequently used in history. I think there were five or six examples that we could find of that. But we have been teaching people about that kind of statute here in Ohio. And there are active efforts now to recall uh, school boards that had mandated the masks. So different than yours, but I guess I'm surprised. So the parents, you do you think in those situations that there were uh, enough parents that really wanted the masks that they could support this recall effort? Well, I mean, you just need one signature, right? Oh, you, well, I guess once it gets to the ballot, I don't think it's going to pass, okay. you know, because so we go through the trial court, then they can appeal it to the state Supreme Court. And assuming the, the charges are upheld at the Supreme Court level, then it goes back to the local jurisdiction to actually have a reelection, right? Okay. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that said the moderate one of the three is probably going to get replaced with the more conservative. So it might bode well. But this is going to be after $200,000 of taxpayer money to have this litigation, the special election for the school district. It's really disheartening, but I'll say this. I'm actually going to start actively working on recalling the other two <laughs> members of the school board. You know, these charges were flimsy at best, but my thought is if I place the same charges on the two I don't like in front of the same judge or at least the same court, I'm going to say, hey, Judge Mendoza two weeks ago said that this this is a recallable effort. You know, I don't believe it is, Your Honor, but you know what? Uh, you said under, right. Yeah, but oh, this is geez. case law for now. So, yeah, well, you know, we're going to see where things go. I mean, it's it's definitely COVID has brought into the forefront all social issues, I believe. I guess that's the one benefit, as scary as it might be. You know, I've lost friends, people that I was very close with, and I'm not talking to death. I'm talking to political issues. Right. I know. Um, you know, and it's disheartening because these are good people that I, I believe at a core 
at least think they love our country. And then they tell me, you know, things about what I'm doing. And I'm just like, well, you understand I'm fighting for your rights too. Right. right. You know? Well, it was amazing to me. Uh, It's been amazing to me in the legal community uh, in Akron, Ohio, where I am, you know, that, that the number of attorneys that supported the, you know, the lockdowns, essentially, the distancing, the masking, the mandatory injections, you know, I, I am just, I'm kind of appalled by it. I mean, and you see the ACLU, you know, I think it was in uh, 2018 that they had a whole pandemic plan that was actually a very good plan. Like even the WHO had a pandemic response that did not involve shutdowns, lockdowns, mandatory injections, any of this stuff. I mean, all this stuff, you know, all this development, all this planning that people had spent decades uh, developing in case there were some kind of pandemic went out the window in, in favor of this essentially copying the communist Chinese effort to lock everybody down and, and you know, limit contacts. So I, yeah, I mean, it's just, and it's amazing to me, you know, because I would, I would think any attorney would say, hey, well, for example, you know, they were telling people they couldn't get together. This is way back, you know, over Thanksgiving in 2020 or whatever. You know, come on, what do you mean we can't get together? It's our families. And, and they were trying to limit the size of the gatherings. It's like, you know, no way. One of the things that did happen here, I don't know if you saw any of this in your state, but our local fraternal order of police, the union actually came out and said, we will not enforce the limitation on family gathering, period. If the health department feels like it wants to go knock on doors and do it, good, good luck. And that, that pretty much, there was no enforcement and the law itself expired after 30 days. So, you know, we kind of got through that one, but I was surprised. I got on a, I got on a Zoom kind of conference with the Bar Association. We had about 60 attorneys on the call and I was arguing about the unconstitutionality of these mechanisms and, and we actually had a vote and about, I think it was about 60% of the attorneys thought, no, that that was fine. They didn't see a constitutional problem, which to me, it's like a completely obvious, crazy constitutional violation. So, yeah. So what, yeah. what else do you have? What else do you have going? What is it? What is your theory of the case? I know you're representing some of the Hanford site employees as well. Is that correct? Yeah, we we did that and we brought it in the Eastern District of Washington. And unfortunately, one judge, Tom Rice, has been assigned all COVID cases since the inception. And he showed his hand very early on. This was like in late 2020, early 21, when he first ruled that it wasn't a violation of rights uh, to, to shut down businesses at the time. There was no vaccine mandate. But, you know, there's a place called Slidewaters. It was an outdoor water park. And they were prepping for their summer, you know, and their summer bust, if you will. And they were only capacitated at like 20%. Like, we can't make money off this. Mm. And this is an outdoor water park. Again, you know, it's not indoor. And, And so Rice said, no, it's okay. The state has the ability to force you into minimal occupancy because this is an aerosolized or airborne disease. So he showed his hand early on. So that was in the Eastern District of Washington. We brought it under the civil rights. We brought, you know, the RIFRA, the Re- Religious Freedom Restoration Act, First Amendment rights. 
14th Amendment, equal protections, kind of the typical what you've seen successful in other courts, you know, specifically in Texas and the Middle District of Florida. We've seen a lot of great opinions out of that. You know, I regret leaving that judicial circuit, but you know, here I am, right? And um, it, that was the theory, was that these individual rights, specifically the religious, Americans with Disabilities Act, we actually pled in state discrimination, not just the equal protection component. Um, and the judge said early on, well, you know, uh, counsel, I'm not, wouldn't be surprised if I issued sanctions on the fact that this isn't well pled and you really don't need state claims here. I'm like, you have this whole discretion to bring it like you're gonna sanction me for you not liking this i mean maybe you should just decline to to, you know your discretionary jurisdiction but that's that's if you were a reasonable person maybe outside of the courtroom he's extremely reasonable i think what's also telling in that case is i appeared twice in front of him right before christmas and then two weeks ago both times telephonic both times, no one could be allowed, no plaintiffs in the courtroom. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it's very telling when he runs his court like that. And that was at his, his discretion. Now, there, there's still a mask mandate in the courts, but it's open. It's open to transact business. And so I, I think one of the most interesting legal theories not related to the case is whether that, that is access to the courts or not. We ran into that where we showed up at court, federal court down in Columbus. There was a mask requirement, which, you know, we don't like, but we went along with it. I got to represent my clients. So everybody goes in with their masks on. There's six or seven attorneys on the other side, myself and Tom, you know, representing these federal uh, contractors and uh, that we were representing at the Portsmouth gaseous diffusion plant in Ohio. So there's a linkage there with Anford. Right. But so we went in and of course the judge said, well, if you're vaxxed, you don't need to wear a mask. And lo and behold, the judge and his staff and all the other attorneys took their masks off and Tom and I were sitting there masked up, you know, and and you just, you got to sit there and think, holy mackerel. I mean, what's the bias here? This is so clear. I mean, what, are we going to win in front of this judge on these issues and Tom and I had both had COVID and recovered, and, and there was no recognition of natural immunity and no, no ability to even discuss that. And, and yet here we were sitting there with our masks on trying to make our TRO case, uh, our restraining order case, which got denied, by the way. So we've been in, we've been in some what I'd call disappointing situations as well. So... You're, where, what's the status of the Hanford case? Right? So that one was dismissed with prejudice after two amended complaints um, two weeks ago. So we're sitting in that 30-day clock. We had a Zoom meeting with the plaintiffs, and there are some that still want to appeal it to the Ninth Circuit. And, you know, I know everyone laughs, Ninth Circuit, you know, Ninth Circus is what you hear it more often. But there are some good appointees. I mean, they're up in age from Bush Sr., but also uh, a lot of Trump appointees, and mm-hmm. he filled it with some phenomenal judges. I've seen both scathing dissents and actual positive opinions, you know, out of some of these cases. So I'm actually hopeful that the Ninth Circuit won't be as bad, especially since there's a case where a permanent injunction was issued on behalf of the state of Arizona in regards to the contractor COVID mandate. 
And that was appealed by the feds up to the Ninth Circuit. So there's a possibility that we file our appeal and end up with a consolidated case with the Arizona team. And I think, you know, that could help us. Yeah. So the Arizona case, which case was that one? It was Burnovich v. Biden, and I think there are several under that title, but that was that was that case. Had they also lost at the district court on motion to dismiss, or, or had they won at district court? Well, they lost a couple issues, but were issued a permanent injunction against the contractor side of the mandate. Okay. And so the feds appealed it. So, you know, it's going to be the flip script of us. So. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Wow. You'll have that teed up very nicely then. And that's that's why the there's an appeal to appealing. And you know, we may only end up doing it with two or three of our plaintiffs rather than the 315, simply for the fact that we have six who are Battelle Memorial Institute, mm-hmm. you know, at the mm-hmm. National Lab. It's Battelle's the, right here in Columbus. Yep. yep. So we have uh, six employees who are at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, the Battelle, the BMI lab up here, and they were placed on leave without pay. Oh, geez. Um, and so they have, you know, the consistent holding we're hearing is, well, you know, you haven't exhausted your administrative rights. Like we're seeking a TRO to keep jobs, Your Honor. Not, we're not seeking damages here. We, we'll deal with that down the road. And so I think that to me, if we could bring even one or two of those individuals, as well as other ones would be nice, but, you know, appeal it at least on their behalf. It makes a stronger case, I believe. So are you in, I mean, you're, the doctrine is essentially, you know, it's in there as state actor or we, you know, we kind of use federal actor, you know, as a replacement kind of naming of that doctrine. Are you using essentially the state actor, federal actor doctrine? Is that what you're using? Yeah. Um, I can't remember the, there was a 19, a section of 42 USC 1984 case rather than 83, which is a state actor. There was an 84 case and I can't remember the case, but that allowed Yuretsky, Yuretsky versus Hewn, is that? Yeah, I think I think that was it, and it allowed uh, a contractor to be placed in the position of the federal government, as though it were working when it's fully funded by the government. And as we know, all these contracts, these prime contractors, at least, are exclusively, you know, working on the government's award. Right. Right. Yeah, we're hoping to get that up on appeal, those issues on appeal here at the uh, Sixth Circuit as well, by the way. So we'll be working in parallel with you here. If, if you get your briefs done, please share them with me. And likewise, if I get mine done, I'll share them with you. We'll put them up on that, on that group chat. Yeah. Uh, but we, yeah, we have the Portsmouth the contractors. And one of the things that did happen at Portsmouth, we filed our TRO and it was denied, uh, preliminary injunction denied. But three of the contractors actually did back down. So three out of four back down. We had 200 employees involved with that. And I think we saved about, you know, the end result was 170 people stayed on the job. 30 people did end up getting fired by one very recalcitrant contractor. So we've seen an impact. I guess I'm asking a question here. We have seen an impact just by bringing the lawsuit that, okay, some of the uh, employees took a hit, a terrible hit, but, but they really did save lots of other jobs. So we saw that both in the Portsmouth case and our case against Smuckers, which Smuckers Jams and Jellies, you may not know this is a federal contractor. They make a million peanut butter and jelly sandwiches a day for prisons and the army and everything else. <laughs> 
So it's a hundred plus million dollar contract for, you know, food for military and, and federal prisons. But what happened at Smuckers as well, even though they had gone after the management with the mandate, you know, an internal company mandate, that's what we saw these companies switch to, like, okay, the Supreme Court ruled, but we're still going to have our own, you know, internal rule here in Portsmouth and at Smuckers in Orville, Ohio. And so they enforce these internal rules. And, you know, luckily, Smuckers decided not to continue to enforce it. So the shop floor employees, which are about 2000 people, did not come under an internal company policy. They backed down on it. And I think it's kind of what you were describing. I mean, you've got a critical situation at that prison where you fired all these employees. I mean, that's a, people don't understand how dangerous that is. And then and that also is a federal civil rights violation in terms of the prisoner's safety, which, you know, I've seen some lawsuits around the country on issues like that, uh, not necessarily in the COVID context, but I could certainly see that developing if you have an unsafe environment because you've reduced your staff so much, the prisoners have a civil rights violation that they could bring as well. I don't know if anybody's looked at that issue. But that would be more your traditional ACLU case, which the ACLU is absent from the field. So we, we did see one writ of mandate early, early on from five prisoners about that. But a writ of mandate has a whole different judicial process, right? When you're seeking direct appeal, direct review from the, the state Supreme Court based on very little testimony, whatever affidavits or declarations you can paste together and Again, it was prisoners, and I think it was pro se. So you know how well those are done. Yeah, not not likely to succeed, right? Right, right. So you bring up two trains of thoughts. Uh, I think the question you were originally asking was, the only people that I'm aware of that were terminated from the Hanford site, and no one's technically been terminated, you know, we, we're going to put that one in air quotes for the listening audience, um, are the PNNL people who are on leave without pay. They've been so for about eight months. Now, some people have quit on their own admission and, and their own volition, but you know there is a memorandum that went out from the DOE site talking about the injunctive relief, the Georgia injunction. I can't remember what case that, that was, but it's presently, it's been appealed and argued in front of the 11th Circuit. And we were waiting, hopefully any day now, we're gonna have an 11th Circuit opinion on the injunction against the contractor mandate. So between that, I believe our lawsuit obviously put pressure on the senior management. We actually named all the different presidents of the local businesses, you know, the, the Hanford contractors. We named them individually. Oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they were pissed. They, oh, they were so upset. So point is, we've seen about six job losses or temporary leave of, of absence without pay and then a handful have quit, but the rest have been preserved. So that's one of the things that's a struggle for us is, yay, we've saved jobs, but boo, we don't have a good lawsuit. Um, but I do think, you know, that's one of the values of appealing is we can keep that pressure on site management saying, hey, we didn't just let this go when it, the case was dismissed. And then to your other point about the prisoners, I think one of the most attractive lawsuits that as you were talking through that, I pieced together was, could you imagine a plaintiff's class of prisoners and terminated workers saying this is an unsafe environment? You know, I mean, the yes. people that they've guarded as, as prisoners are now looking to those who have guarded them for additional relief by suing. And again, I think from my perspective, we could sue the warden here locally and keep it in Franklin County. I think that'd be super attractive 
at a minimum having prisoners as lead plaintiffs and then the workers as kind of the secondary levels might bode well in an appellate or a Supreme Court case here. I, I love the thought. I love the optics of that. Uh, you yeah. know, the prisoners and, and the, you know, and the guards, they all understand the environment that they're living in and what can go wrong very quickly in that environment. So that's yep. a, that's a great idea. Well, I, I've kept you almost an hour. I, I appreciate your time. I certainly, I mean, anything else that you would like to add and, and, and talk about? You know, I mean, there's so much we could, I could spend all day talking about the things we're doing. One of the things that I'm most proud of, and I saw a case similar out of, I can't even remember, it was one of the district courts in like Southern Ohio, Eastern Cincinnati, or so I, I can't remember, and I, excuse my geography, but it was a district court where it actually held a school board president in violation of First Amendment rights for cutting people off for speaking against her. And, you know, I think about my recall case, I'm actually going to cite to that case because the school board president here has cut people off when they've kind of gone on their diatribes of how wicked and evil she is. But that's kind of tangential to one of the things I'm most proud of. We talked, I think, before the recording about teaching people to advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. We had a single mom who was a former paralegal who contacted me in this small county in rural Washington. And she asked, she said, hey, look, I've been issued an order of no trespass from my county sheriff because I went to my school, protested masks, and the administration then went to the sheriff's office and got an order of no trespass. What do I do? I said, I have no idea. This is the craziest conversation I'm having, right? And, and so I actually ghost wrote a notice of appeal with her on like a two-day timeline and said, this is how I want you to argue this. She showed up in court against the school district's outside counsel, not their internal counsels, I understand, but outside hired counsel. And the judge said, you know, why are we even here? This is right. the last step, not the first step. And anyone that thinks this should be the first step, it's laughable, get out of my court. And so this mom goes from being barred from the school, having to submit Public Records Act requests about, hey, what did I say on camera that pissed you off so much, right? To now she gets to go back to school. Obviously, she doesn't want to be there anymore, but at least she has the ability to go back. Those are the things that are the untold stories of COVID that I think are going to get buried that we forget. Silent Majority Foundation, what you're doing with your law firm and, and the organizations you've created under it or, or through it or however you're doing that, we each stand for individual civil rights. You know, right, right. I guess since I'm here and we're winding down, I'll plug us, silentmajorityfoundation.org or to shorten that, we bought smfjb.org. And I was thinking about that. I was like, how do I work FJB into my logo? <laughs> so, so smfjb.org will point you to our site. And, and we're going to get more about our story. But ultimately, we just want people to live in the America that I grew up in in the 80s and 90s. You know, as a 42-year-old man, I look at my eight, six, and three-year-old, and there's no way I would let them ride to 7-Eleven. No way. Right. No way. 
Right. And we right. did that as a matter of course, all the time. Yeah. And mom didn't want to deal with us. She wanted to clean the house. So she kicked us out and told yeah. us, here's money, go get your drinks, play basketball, and come back home in five hours or whatever. Right. <laughs> I mean, I've got a couple of decades on you, by the way, but I mean, that's what it was like at the door. We were thrown out of the house yep. and, and ran all day long, ran and played yep. all day long and never had a worry in the world. I mean, just, yeah. you know, that kind of freedom. I'm very worried about all the rules, you know, and all the controls on these kids. I mean, you really need, especially, I hate to say this, but boys, I mean, I'm a boy. I had two brothers. My God, did we get in trouble? You, know, but <laughs> you, you have to, you have to be able to get out there and use that energy up and, and get in some trouble and learn your lessons you know, and be kind of free to fail a little bit without all these horrific consequences that I think kids are facing now, which leads to mental health issues and everything else that's going on. But, you know, you got to burn that energy off, that boy energy. I've got girls, I've got two right. girls and, you know, grand, a granddaughter, so they got plenty of energy too. But yeah, that's that kind of freedom, man. We got to get back to it. We got to get back to it. I love your, the story. We have seen that as well, growing over time where the local governing bodies, whether it's a school board or a council or whatever, they are becoming very intolerant of any criticism. And they are using this trespass notion to limit and block uh, your ability to uh, address that local government, uh, especially if you're a dissenter and have some other opinion. So they really do not want to hear from the people. I, I, I get that. And uh, boy, I, that's really something to be proud of, that, that uh, young woman who fought that and stood her ground. Wow. Thanks for helping her. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's what we do as just a matter of, I think it's, we need to recognize that the privilege of being American is the extension of being American to others. And to standing for those freedoms, to stand for those rights. And I mean, that's, that's, I think, where this country is so lost. You know, when you're looking for someone to give you the rules to play by, I mean, obviously, there's got to be some code. There's no question. We, because we, we'd go too far potentially. But the beauty of what our founding fathers gave us was the ability to self govern. And we can't go too far right, we can't go too far left have some type of guardrails, but there's got to be more gray in the middle. Yeah, I, I agree. If you impose to all these rules that, that aren't allowing for the speech and the expression of ideas, um, you're, you're really going to create a very immature society that can't govern itself and can't get along and can't figure out a way to compromise and, and, and get to community solutions. So well, let's do this. I'm sure we are going to have more discussions uh, later uh, as your cases develop. So let's plan to get get back together in a few months and, and kind of update each other in terms of where things are. Some of the stuff was maybe a little, uh, a little technical in terms of legal, some legal concepts, but your work is incredibly important and I appreciate you taking some time with me. Well, as is yours. And I think if anyone gleans nothing more than there's someone in Ohio and someone in Washington fighting for their rights, take that and take hope from this. You know, I try to add, add that 
measure to my conversation. You know, people are so distressed, distraught, depressed, all of the above, like have hope. There are people fighting for you. So thank you too for your time and thank you for your work. All right. Well, you have a good night.